got divorced and I've always joked that my parents had had part-time jobs both of them when I was growing up on top of their full-time jobs which was just getting married and divorced from people I love them both but uh, lots of marriages I always felt like I'd processed all that and I'd swept the emotions under the rug or whatever you know I'd always like said this out loud about myself and I realized that that's not 100% true but the difference is I didn't realize it because I didn't know how to process it So my ability to turn every negative into a positive is like good and bad. I've repressed like real trauma. I had this moment, my my son is 10 now, so this is when he was eight, where it was like a Saturday morning. We were getting ready to like do something, run around, do something fun. And I was looking at him and I just immediately, for some reason, started thinking about where I was in my life when I was that age. And I could picture my life and what was going on and it immediately made me very sad. And then I told my wife and I became emotional. And then I was like, I don't remember that being sad then. And then she said, does it make you have grace for yourself? And I said, yeah, absolutely. So then they went and got in the car and I was like, all right, let me fill up my water cup or whatever. And I remember standing there at the fridge and then started crying very hard. It was like this crazy release. So I kind of went to the counselor with that, you know, and I was like, I was fine then I thought. And he just was shaking his head. He was like, you were clearly in no way fine. Story Enneagram Podcast. I'm Jim Gum, and I'm an Enneagram teacher and coach living in Kansas City. Today, we're going to hear from some self-preservation sevens as part of this season's series on the self-preservation subtypes. The Enneagram self-preservation seven is called Network. They're pragmatic, resourceful, and optimistic. The Enneagram seven lives on the sunny side of the street. Even though life may be hard, they're able to convince themselves and others that they're just fine. The Self-Preservation 7 pursues their interests by connecting with others and building a network of relationships to satisfy their desires. Have you ever wondered why some people's connections allow them to experience so many wonderful things? Today, we're going to listen to stories from Self-Preservation 7s to understand how their outlook on life and their ability to resource their relational network make for a rich and meaningful life. As you heard Billy share in the opening, Enneagram 7s have the ability to focus on the positive. Listen to how Matt describes his experience. Yeah, I mean, I remember even as a kid, really loving drawing and coloring. Like, I I still have a vivid memory of my dad, like, showing me how to, like, outline the coloring shapes, you know, and then, like, shade it in the middle. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's so cool. I liked being creative and drawing and, and getting more into it as I got older. and in college, having to have a hard conversation with my dad. I was like, dad, I want to major in art. And he's like, no, you can't do that. Uh, but he he understood, I think, my creativity. and was like, well, get a minor in journalism. I realized I liked helping people communicate what they were about, trying to convey the message through visual design. That's where I kind of found the nice combo of creativity without it being about my self-expression. I never felt real connected to that part of art. And here's Allie. 
When I was a kid, I looked a lot more like a seven. My mom was always like, are you going to ever be home one night? I, I wanted to be involved in different activities. I wanted to see friends, particularly in high school um, and in college, you know, always had plans. If I was studying, it was always with other people, always very social. And that worked for a long time. I think what's interesting and probably why when you approach me about this as a self-preservation seven, that has made a lot more sense in my 30s and 40s because I kind of crashed and hit a wall. The nickname for the self-preservation seven is network. They utilize their social skills and network to pursue the things they desire for practical purposes. Billy speaks about his ability to connect with others. If I'm being honest, it, I start to feel a little defensive when I look back. It just happens organically. So like my nature is I want to connect. with. I love to make friends. I love to talk to people. Allie will be like, why are you giving the Disney plus tech support person so much airtime? I'm like, she's laughing her head off, you know, and she's helping me. But yeah, but it's eight and you were calling her to try to get the Disney Plus to get back on so we can watch a 15 minute show with our kids who need to go to bed, you know, that kind of thing. And again, that's just because it's fun to connect with people. That's my job. You know, that also that works out, you know, leading a nonprofit. It's just like being part of a group and connecting with people, making relationships. Allie would say, she's often said that one of my spiritual gifts is getting free concert tickets. Listen to how Matt experiences his network. When I reflected, I was like, oh, I do. I do like have like a few of these like really key relationships that I've had for a long time. Those key people in my life kind of connect me to other people. What are the relationships that either I'm like, that person is really interesting. I need more of that in my life. I think they're sort of like avenues to ensure that I don't get stuck or bored. <laughs> There's kind of like a, a gate fee for that. And that's like, you have to be interesting. <laughs> There's something, you have to be interesting to me. As I was starting to get into graphic design, I ran across a couple people. They knew somebody I knew. And it was like, oh, you teach graphic design. I need to talk to you. <laughs> like, I need, I, that's what I want to do. And there were definitely times where I was like, I'm just working on a, it's not even a design piece. It's just like an art piece that I was working on. And I remember seeking out a few of these individuals. Tell me what, how to make this better. Here's how Billy describes networking as he leads the nonprofit Steps of Faith, which provides prosthetics to people who've lost a limb. When I've been on the phone or meeting with somebody we're partnering with in some way, like a new prosthetic clinic, I've often said like my favorite part of this job, other than, you know, the changing people's lives part, the thing we do is making a connection like that. that. That's the exciting part to me is kind of building the network that we've built over the last 10 years. And it's also fulfilling. I mean, obviously at the end of the day, I know that at this point over a thousand people that are using all four of their limbs again or, or, or whatever, walking again or whatever, you know, that we were able to get a prosthesis that didn't have one and would not have been able to get one otherwise because of the work we've done. So that's very, very fulfilling. But but yeah, I don't know, man. I just love like building the team. It's natural for Enneagram 7s to be optimistic about their life and about the future. Matt mentioned earlier that he was looking for interesting people that would keep him from feeling stuck or bored. A challenge for the 7 is the mundane, or even worse, dealing with the difficult things that are an unavoidable part of every life. 
Here's how Matt describes his experience. You know, just becoming more aware of those things that I feel are uncomfortable, like just bringing that discomfort more to the surface to where it's not as much of a subconscious thing. Like that's the first part, right? Being aware like, oh, I'm in an uncomfortable space here. Oh, hey, there's actually nothing going on and that's okay. And here's Allie again. And so that was 2014. At that time, I had young kids. Well, I had one young kid and another one I was either expecting or had just had. You know, there was the newness of all of that and the enjoyment and the freedom of the days spent home with them. But there was a real loss of identity and drive and purpose that was happening for me. And in 2017, I was starting to show signs of depression, which was really shocking for me because as I'm sure with a lot of sevens, we can work our way out of sadness pretty quickly. I started seeing a therapist and she said, this looks to me like anxiety-induced depression. And so we really started delving into what the anxiety was, which was something I didn't think I had because it didn't manifest like typical anxiety because <laughs> I wasn't worried all the time. I just was running like a typical seven would with a lot of tabs open with very high performance, right? You know, I can, I can usually operate just kind of getting up and going out into the world, you know, at 85 to 90% on a test. I can just kind of do that. I didn't understand that the way I was living my life was either all on or all off. And what happened was my body just said, we can't do this anymore. My body was choosing all off a lot. That was also really hard because I had spent so much of my life thinking my value was being really productive and collaborative and networking and seeing people and, you know, being successful. Matt continues. Yeah, I mean, there was a definitely a period of time where there was a lot of loss in my mid-20s. My dad passed away. And I was also still in that stage of figuring out who the heck I was. Like, what do I want to do for a career? You know, it didn't really feel like I, I had a clear direction or vision. That was a time that I became more aware of, like, my tendency to just be like, no, I'm not dealing with that. I'm just not going to deal with it. Just go do something else. I'm going to go to art school and get a design degree. And, okay, I don't really want to deal with the loss of my father I don't really know what I want to do, so I got to do something. It kind of was an escape during that time. And I remember I did a thing called Focus. There's one exercise in there that they give you a name based on kind of what you what they see you struggling with for me growing up. It was Peter Pan. And so it's like just not wanting to grow up, not wanting to accept responsibility or deal with hard things. Gluttony is the passion of type seven. And here's how Frederick Beekner defines it. A glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. It's a relentless desire to not be limited and experience all that life has to offer. It's also a strategy to avoid pain by continuing to find new interests, new activities, and new outlets. Each passion has a corresponding virtue. And for gluttony, it's sobriety. And here's Allie again. So that led to another thing that I was contemplating whether or not to share because it's kind of vulnerable. Well, I think it's actually important 
And I think it's important in particular for the seven context. So that was 2017 when I started the the journey. In, t- 2000, in 2021, I started embracing sobriety. And, and I haven't drank since then. For me, that's been another part of this story. And again, it's funny because I think from the self-preservation seven perspective, I never looked on paper like someone that had a problem with alcohol because I was always the person in college or wherever I could kind of keep, I could keep pace with everybody. But the way I refer to it, my whole life, if one is good, 10 is better. But I also have the self-preservation instinct enough to know if 10 is not acceptable, it's going to be four. So for me, as I started to understand that anxiety, the way that I used alcohol was to get space between me and my brain and to quiet all the thoughts down. And so it just had become a coping skill that had just wasn't serving me anymore. And I was dealing with headaches and So kind of the same thing as the anxiety, what my body does, because there's all those feelings that we feel, we feel, well, for me anyway, I realize I feel joy and I feel fear and that's about it. (laughs) And so anything that is sad, loss, grief, it'll move very quickly into fear or it'll just get reframed in the joy category. Here's Billy again. But I was hardly ever a... I'm just going to have one or two drinks. I could take it or leave it kind of person. I loved it. I will say I love it, even though it is not an activity I partake in anymore because I can't. I have that disease of alcoholism. It was everywhere on both sides of my family. And so it it just was a thing where I'd always loved to drink. I, I, I love the healthy aspects of it too. I just, I love it. I love everything about it except the bad parts <laughs> about it, you know, um, and I don't love those. It just was fun. And my wife, that was not her thing at all. And so I remember we were dating and I was on tour. Uh, we were on the phone after a show and I'd had, you know, I was definitely and had way too much to drink. And I'd said something to her that I do remember. I think she texted me after we got off the phone and was basically like, this is a problem. You could lose me because of this. This could be a deal breaker. Both Allie and Billy describe sobriety from alcohol. However, sobriety as a virtue has a much larger context. We can learn to be sober about work, shopping, eating, the list goes on. Here's Allie's perspective. Oh man, I forgot that. So when I was a kid, my grandfather owned the Village Inn franchises in Nebraska, Iowa. And so we could eat for free there. But part of it being free was we could order what we liked. And so I liked having the soup and I liked having the club sandwich and I liked having this. And I so I remember my mom and other people saying, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. That translates into so many things, right, in my life. So for me, my story was, even though my alcohol use was not to the limit that maybe it is for some people, I still needed some help to do it. It was not, it's not just an on-off switch. And so the night that I had decided that I needed to get some help for it, I came into my husband and he was like, so you're just going to stop forever? This is what people say all the time, which could you terrify a seven anymore, right? 
One of the gifts for me of the way that a lot of these helper programs are, are oriented is to keep it small and to just take one day as it comes. And so when you talk about the virtue, that is one gift I have gotten from sobriety that I've been able to apply into every aspect of my life. Particularly for me, it's with finances. When something is very overwhelming or I'm not terribly good at it, I don't know how to ask for help. I don't know how to go look for help when a project is undesirable. And so I kind of stuff it and ignore it. And in order to even make a bit of progress on it, I have to keep it really small so that I can see like a little bit of progress. This is the this is the stage of what where I'm working on this now is it's kind of moved from the substances and the thought and the limiting self-beliefs that now like there's some stuff I got to get in order. As I talk about this, my stomach turns. I'm just like, oh, like I don't want to adult and do this crap. The upside of the seven, the optimism, the creativity, the need for adventure doesn't disappear when life gets hard. Wisdom comes when a seven realizes that refusing to face difficulty won't make you happy. Here's what Matt has learned. I think that was a pretty fundamental one, realizing how I have something I can contribute here. Me being married to a more emotional person. To not feel like I have to take on her emotions necessarily, but to be more empathetic. And, and instead of trying to fix her emotions or make, make her feel better because she's sad about something or anxious about something, like to sort of sit with her in those emotions. I think it's been good practice for me. I think what I'm working on now is being able to sit with her in those emotions and be empathetic and then sort of do an inventory. Like, am I feeling like that? Like, oh yeah, I am. Or like, oh no, I, I think that's just kind of something that she's processing through and I can support her by just listening and being present without trying to offer any any sort of way out as I would want somebody to do do for me. Enneagram 7s can find true satisfaction by leaning into life's hard lessons. Those lessons can be transformed into joy far beyond what chasing after happiness could never deliver. That's it for this episode of the Story Enneagram podcast. Thanks for listening. If you or someone you know is a seven who feels uncomfortable when life gets difficult, you've come to the right place. Wouldn't it be great to know that the harder emotions are just as useful as the happy ones? Visit my website at storyenneagram.com. I offer Enneagram team building experiences and training for businesses, schools, and nonprofits. I also offer personal coaching packages for individuals or couples. Drop me a line and let's explore what the Enneagram can do for you. Please subscribe to the Story Enneagram podcast. Share it with your friends and family. And if you're really feeling it, leave a rating in Apple Podcasts. I'd appreciate it. Our music is by Daniel Gum. You can hear his music on Spotify or wherever you get your music. And yes, we do have the same last name. Story Enneagram where learning your type is just the beginning of a whole new story.